0: Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madam. The podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world.
1: Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long held relationships, industry knowledge, and data driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions.
0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast. And as I'm starting a new podcast today, your host is one of the SC Magazine's top 50 women in cybersecurity. it's Carla Effold. In today's episode, we are joined by Hayden Brooks. Hayden started in a big four environment, working in cyber risk, mainly focusing on supply chain and third party security. The pain he saw and the difficulty clients were having drove him to co-found Risk Ledger. Now as CEO, he developed the product through Cylon, the Cybersecurity London Accelerator, and has now raised their initial venture capital investment to expand the product globally into the market. This exciting platform enables its customers to check security over their entire supply chain with very minimal staff. In 2019, he was recognised as a Forbes 30 Under 30 member. Hope you enjoy it.
1: So today I'm talking with Hayden Brooks, who is the founder of a company which I love called Risk Ledger, um, and I've known Hayden for a couple of years now. So I think this is going to be a really good story uh, of around a, a great startup journey. So let's start with you. Where did you where did you grow up?
2: Yeah, hi Carla. Um, so I grew up in West London. I suppose I kind of moved around a lot as a kid. Um, so the first kind of ten years of my life was spent around Brentford and Middlesex. Uh, and then the second half out in Buckinghamshire uh, in a place called Amersham, which is the very last stop on the Metropolitan Line.
1: I know it uh, very well.
2: University, <laughs> sorry.
1: I know it very well. Yes, the Metropolitan <laughs> Line out to Amersham. <laughs> Painful. Yeah.
2: It is. Yeah, it's a nice place, though. A lot of uh, countryside and, and greenery.
1: And um, what about education?
2: Yeah, so uh, went to a grammar school uh, out in Amersham, which was the reason why I think my parents moved out there. Uh, And after that, I ended up at Imperial College studying biomedical science for three years as an undergrad. Uh, So I was back into London um, and within kind of biomed, there's various different areas you can specialize in. And I spent the final year kind of focusing on neuroscience. So I think my thesis was on probably four or five years ago now, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it was on uh, looking at new drug targets for a certain type of brain cancer. Wow. Yeah, something completely different to (laughs) security.
1: Well, it does sound very different, but is it that different? Are there similarities or things that you've brought with you into security?
2: Uh, definitely, in so much that I suppose it, you're studying science, so you're kind of taught from the get-go all about the scientific method and critical analysis and logical thinking. Um, so I suppose a lot of the soft skills you bring over to to your working life and, and are directly applicable within security. But um, none of the the technical skills like pipetting or or doing any of the analyses or or fish analysis. I can't even remember all the names. Fluorescent hybrids, in situ hybridization or something. Uh, All of that stuff I've completely forgotten.
1: (laughs) I think most people probably have, right? (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So where did the idea for Risk Ledger come from?
2: Oh, good question. So when I started my career, I started as a graduate at KPMG uh, and the very first project I had was looking at supply chain security for a large bank in, in London. And whilst running that project or, or being involved in that project, I came up with this idea um, for kind of combining the process or boiling the process down to something a lot simpler and easier around sharing assurance between companies. And that was the, the, the kind of core stem of the idea uh, and then from there, it kind of developed over over the next few years until until we launched Risk Ledger.
1: Okay. So how long were you with KPMG for? Uh,
2: not too long. So I was there for just under two years, I think, as a grad. Um, they, the kind of the big four go through boom and busts when it comes to, to kind of consulting work. So when I joined KPMG, they were on quite a, a large growth trajectory. Um, and then two years later, they were unfortunately kind of shrinking the team a bit because I think the work, some of the work had dried up. Uh, so from there, I headed over to Deloitte.
1: Okay. And what did you do with Deloitte?
2: Similar thing. So I joined their cyber risk team um, and I was within that team. That was a team of 15 when I joined. Uh, A bit later on, they basically combined the cyber risk team with the consulting team and the consulting team was a much larger team. But within the cyber risk team, I focused purely on supply chains. So all of my projects were around helping clients understand the risk from their supply chains and then helping them to mitigate that as well.
1: So what made you think, I'm going to go out and create this product on my own? Did you, did you consider doing it within Deloitte or within KPMG? Or was it always something you wanted to do for yourself?
2: Um, to be honest, I, I don't really know. Um, it was all kind of a, a big blur. I definitely did consider doing it with, with one of the big four. But I don't think, because it's a technology product, as much as I love the big four, they're not really geared for building technology. They're not a technology firm. So it, there was always kind of that in the back of my head saying, if I'm going to do this properly and, and I want to do this properly, I'll need to leave and, and set up a company uh, and, and do it kind of solo um, and with a co-founder and a team, obviously. Uh, but there was no kind of trigger moment or no, no overarching, right, now we're, we're going to do this kind of thought. It was very much a, um, yeah, just over a few weeks, built a pitch deck, and then from there it kind of all spiraled.
1: Well, that's a really interesting point because lots of people have ideas or have dreams of having a business, but leaving the security of a, a, a full-time, well-paid job um, or actually just getting the confidence to take that, that leap, that can take people years. What, um, yeah. Was there a moment where you just realized it was happening? or How did that come about?
2: Yeah, so I'd actually left Deloitte and joined a startup myself, which was a consulting startup. Uh, And I left that startup on a Friday and then went full-time on Risk Ledger on the Monday. But throughout kind of the the few months before that or prior to that, uh, I'd had a couple of friends who worked in venture capital. So they'd walked me through kind of what a technology startup involves, a lot of the stages that that you need to go through in order to be able to build a company. And I found that really helpful because that kind of set the ground and gave you almost like a framework to work against. So you're able to break down this huge task of building a company down into these kind of um, individual kind of segments of work. Um, and yeah, and then in terms of, I suppose, the, the confidence to take the plunge, to be honest, I've, I've always been the type of person who just, I, I tend to tell people I'm going to do something and even in my head, I don't think I'm going to do it. And then because I've told people, like, I kind of think, Oh, I have to do it now. Uh, so you end up kind of forcing yourself into doing it. Um, so i say, yeah, that's probably the, the way I went about starting risk leisure, uh, but it very much was left, uh, left a full-time employment on a Friday. And then from the Monday onwards was, was, uh, yeah, full-time on risk leisure.
1: Wow. Now, you went through, was it two accelerators?
2: Uh, Kind of. So, the first accelerator we did, which was actually before uh, I went full-time, was something called Hut Zero, which was a week-long course sponsored by uh, DCMS uh, and and helped, I think it was run by uh, the same people who run Cyber London, so Grace and Jonathan and Kirsten. Um, And the idea behind that week-long course is just to give you an introduction into entrepreneurship, into building a company specifically within cybersecurity and give you some guidance around how to write a pitch deck and kind of the very basic fundamentals that you need to you need to learn quite quickly in order to be able to progress and um, so did that and that kind of gave me a, a flavor for what i was getting myself into and then got accepted onto Cylon so Cylon uh, is a startup accelerator run out of Hammersmith uh, and that's Jonathan and Grace of the co-founders and that's a three-month uh, long accelerator that basically takes uh, cyber startups and then for three months helps them shape their value proposition, introduces them to investors, to potential clients. Uh, you go through kind of day after day after day of speed mentoring. So it's kind of 20 minutes with each mentor, really full on. Um, and I think before I'd started Cylon, I'd maybe pitched 10 to 20 times. By the end of the three months, I must have been nearish four to 500 pitches.
0: Wow. Um,
2: so you really, yeah, you you kind of see yourself and hear yourself develop over over that time period, which is absolutely great. And it culminates in a demo day where they invite a load of Potential investors in London into a room, um, and you get uh, three minutes to pitch, which is my first taste of a of a pitch that's kind of encapsulated with a time frame. So you had to get it all out in three minutes, which is a lot harder than it sounds. Um, and yeah, that kind of off the back of that, we managed to raise our first investment round. So that's uh, that definitely helped launch us into into what we are now.
1: Brilliant. So how do you go about getting accepted into something like Cylon?
2: yeah so um, there's there's huge amounts of, of information on on this kind of online it's a similar process so silent invests some in money uh, so they invested fifteen thousand pounds and took some equity for that right at the very start and they're typically the first external investors that a company will have um, and so they kind of go through the same process that a, a traditional investor would when they're assessing a company so they look at kind of two or three things primarily so firstly the founding team so do they believe that the founding team are going to take this forward and are going to deliver a company at the end of it, and they're not going to give up after a year. And they they believe that the founding team are smart enough to to kind of almost pivot around any challenges they come across. And um, the second was the idea. So although that's that's definitely kind of put in a, a second position to the founding team, they do look at the idea whether it's viable, whether you've kind of thought through the value proposition, whether it's it's reasonable and something that they think kind of the market will like. Um, and then, yeah, the third kind of thing that they would look at to that is almost execution to date. So the the strange thing is when I first looked at starting a company, a lot of people think you can come up with an idea a pitch deck and then investors will throw money at you if it's a good idea and you have a background in, in whatever uh, the idea is in. That's not generally the case. So you need to somehow kind of show a track record of having delivered against deadlines, having delivered against um kind of no framework around you that's a really bad way of saying it but almost uh being left alone to deliver work without uh having somebody above you telling you how to deliver the work uh and kind of that execution and proving that execution gives them comfort that when it comes to kind of uh solving a problem in terms of let's say supply chain so we're going to solve supply chain that you can actually break that down and progress down it without anybody telling you how to that makes
1: yeah. sense? Yes, no, that does make sense. Although that must be quite hard <laughs> <helpful>. to prove. <laughs> how do how do you go about demonstrating that you can work in such an autonomous way?
2: Yeah, I, I, a lot of it is just speaking to people. So when you first come up with the idea, you'll have an idea and you'll think it's the best idea on the planet and you won't want to tell anyone in case anyone else steals it. Uh, and that's definitely the wrong way to, to think about that. So the idea that you'd first come up with is always going to have to be molded and changed and, and reconfigured based on feedback. So the best bit of advice I ever got was from a gentleman called David Chan, who just said you pitch to everyone, uh, whether it's your parents, whether it's colleagues, people you meet on the street, just tell them what you're up to pitch to them and then listen to, to their feedback or their advice on how you pitch it and what you're pitching. Um, and that helps over time that helps kind of develop the pitch, develop the value proposition you're bringing you start to realise that there's a lot of nuances to, to certain parts of, of what you're trying to do that maybe other people can see that you can't. And just showing that track record of having developed the value proposition and the pitch over time is one way to show execution. And then the second way would be to actually find customers who are willing to back that vision. So before starting on Cylon, we had I had spoken to a number of kind of CISOs. They'd all said, yeah, this is a great idea. Um when you're progressing with it and when the tech's built, we'd love to love to be involved and, and trial it. Uh, and having kind of people from the industry back you up and and really buy into that vision from an early stage really does show that uh, you can execute against it and you can get people bought into what you're trying to do without you having even a technology product to sell. So there'd be the two ways that i do it. And then the third way would be find a co-founder. So um, it's really hard to raise investment if you don't have a founding team. So if you're a solo founder, you can do it, but it's exceptionally hard. And VCs typically won't invest in solo founders. So the first kind of hurdle is trying to find somebody who's willing to to work for free or leave their day job to join you in a startup that typically has no money, no salaries and persuading them that it's the right thing to do. Uh, And yeah, that's probably the hardest part of starting uh, a company, finding somebody who can complement your skill set and who is willing to buy into that vision just as much as you are without paying them, for example.
1: So how did you find yours? (laughs)
2: So I was looking for about six months and I got accepted onto, there's a number of accelerators and kind of programs around London that try and help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. So one being Entrepreneur First, uh, so I was accepted onto Entrepreneur First and a few others Um, and it turns out after about four or five months of looking, we actually subletted a room in our flat. So one of my flatmates moved out for a couple of months to Australia for a secondment. So we subletted his room and uh, my now co-founder's friend moved into the room. Uh, and I was introduced to my co-founder through him. And at the time, my co-founder was was just finishing up at university, uh, was a developer. So it was kind of a, a perfect opportunity for for him to to leave and go straight into a startup, uh, rather than me, um, yeah, having to having to ask somebody to leave their day job or, or build a startup alongside somebody else working full
1: time. So that sounds really fortunate. But also, if you were looking for four to six months, you know that that feels like you put a lot of effort in.
2: Yeah, um, it honestly is the most uh, scary thing you'll ever do. It's almost like dating, except um, when you're dating someone, you might see them two, three times a week, uh, a bit more if you've kind of been dating for a while. Uh, your co-founder you spend nine to ten hours a day with, you're speaking to them every day, every weekend. They see the highs, they see the lows of what you're going through at work. Just the relationship you have with them is so intense that, that it can be quite scary at first trying to meet people and, and trying to gauge whether or not you can actually build a company with them. In terms of like luck, it definitely is, uh, yeah, a lot of luck came into it. But I'd say it was also, you have to say yes to everything. So a lot of times you'll be invited to an event and you don't really want to go. It's a Tuesday evening or something and, and you have a load of work to do. And it was just learning to say yes to everything and going out and speaking to people and forcing yourself into situations where this luck can happen and where you kind of find these opportunities, where where uh, things like somebody moving into the fat and introducing you to their friend can kind of happen. Um, so, yeah, it's part, partly luck and then partly just forcing yourself out there and, and trying to generate as many opportunities as possible.
1: We always used to say in my company, the, uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, that's a really good point about how much time you have to spend with that person, but also the amount of trust you have to put into that person too. How have you gone about building that trust between the two of you?
2: Yeah, I think uh, again, it's it's kind of done over time, so you can't really expect to sit down with someone and, and trust them explicitly from day one. With uh, with Dan, my co-founder, so the reason why I knew it would work pretty much immediately was he was the first person who I sat opposite who kind of pointed out all the flaws in my plan and and where everything could go wrong, and that was quite refreshing and nice to hear somebody who was actually kind of critically analysing what we were doing and, and coming up with with ideas for themselves uh and i'm yeah really humbled that he, he joined because he's twice as smart as i could ever be um which yeah over time kind of you you see them deliver work you, they see you deliver work and you kind of build this trust around okay well i've seen him get out of some quite kind of tough spots on the tech side uh, he's seen me get out of some quite tough spots and mistakes on the business side so you kind of build up that that trust and rapport um over time
1: and one of the things you mentioned was finding someone that complements your skill set. Um, and I think it was you that introduced me to this phrase, the hacker, hustler, hipster uh, kind of trio. Hustler, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> how, how does one go about identifying where they, they fit? Because, you know, a lot of people that have that entrepreneurial spirit generally think they can do it all. So how do you, how do you go about picking your weaknesses?
2: Yeah, the only way to really find out is to try and do it. So I suppose there's, there's kind of multiple answers to that. So the first would be that um, the hackster, hipster, hustler kind of uh, trichotomy was, I can't remember the gentleman's name who came up with it, but it's definitely not a quote that, that I can kind of take. But yeah, the the hackers, the hackers probably the easiest one to identify because they have to be able to code and deliver, deliver kind of tech. Uh, and that's a skill set that, that only some people have. So if you're a great coder, you end up, typically being the, uh, the hacker. And when I say a great coder, it's not just uh, kind of the quality of the code you write, but your ability to uh, think of kind of quick ways around problems and, and be able to, to come up with solutions uh, quickly that might not be perfect, but that, that do the job at the start. Uh, and then in terms of the uh, hipster and hustler, so the hipster is typically a marketing person. So they love basically getting the message out there, speaking to as many people as possible. Uh, they're usually a guru when it comes to digital marketing. Uh, and your hustler is basically uh, the CEO, so somebody who goes out, hustles for money, hustles for clients, uh, and is constantly kind of putting themselves out there and, and trying to to progress the business uh, in whatever way it needs progressing. Um, and yeah, they're probably the hardest to differentiate between. Um, again, there's a lot of literature out there on how to how to find out which which role you fit into best. But um, the only advice I could give is give them all a try and then after five to six months, if you're a team of three and you've each given kind of each role a try, have an honest conversation around what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy about each role and then just try and kind of figure out which one you'd, you'd like to work in. Uh, a lot of that kind of initial kind of year of building a company is all about figuring out what you want to do and how you want to do it. It literally is the wild west. There's, there's you can build a company in whatever way you want with uh, with whatever kind of framework you want. So it's, it's up to you to kind of pick one and run with it until, until you want to change it and iterate.
1: And would you say uh, Cylon helps you with that, that um, having that framework around you?
2: Massively, massively, yeah. So um, that's probably the biggest value accelerators bring is that they introduce you to other people who are running companies and you get some great stories and advice off of them on how to do it. And then the second part is that there are definitely certain things where you have to be disciplined in doing them. So, for example, you need to upskill on the legal side, you need to understand kind of how companies are built uh, in terms of the legal frameworks. Uh, you need to make sure that's all kind of done done right and done perfectly, so there's no problems down the line. Similarly, with the accounting and the tax and and just kind of the structure around that and the the training and discipline they provide around that kind of framework uh, is invaluable. It means you make a, a lot fewer mistakes at the start of the journey, which definitely then helps later on. You're not having to go back and fix things that uh, that, that you got wrong at the start.
1: Okay. Um, And since then, I know you've had a a couple of years and you've got some more funding recently. So what was that process like?
2: Yeah, so we went full time April 2018. April, May, June was Cylon. Off the back of that, we raised our first funding round that was led by a venture capital firm called and We had uh, Episode One Ventures and Village Global, who are a big uh, venture fund out of uh, San Francisco, coming to that round as well and a bunch of angel investors. Uh, So we used that money to hire a couple of developers, and then Dan and the the developers built out the platform and the team, um, launched the platform January 2019 now, so last year, about two years old. Uh, And yeah, we basically at that point got handed a term sheet, which was for a seed round um, from First Minute Capital, who are another big venture capital firm in London, uh, the co-founder of which is Brent Hoberman, who founded lastminute.com. So once they heard the vision of what we're trying to build and, and the uh, the kind of the impact it could have on, on the ecosystem as a whole, uh, they were pretty bought in. So uh, they gave us the term sheet. We then uh, all the existing investors also followed on and, and handed some money into the round. Uh, so we raised that round and closed it uh, July last year. And that gave us kind of... Um, some real capital then to, to hire a, a bit of a larger team and start to really deliver on a lot of the a lot of the things that, that we needed to deliver on so improving the technology going out there to the market uh, customer acquisition things like that
1: and I think you said to me that sort of access to investors was not really a problem do you think that's because you've got a great product or do you think a lot of <laughs> uh, a lot of companies experience that?
2: Um, I think it's, it's, it's a lot easier to understand when you kind of realize uh, this, the, the direction they're coming from. So the way I think about startups are there really are kind of three facets to it. Four, if you want to count operations, but you have like uh, sales, investment and then technology. And essentially, um, the investment side, the investors are there to hand over money. If you're a venture capital firm and you've raised a hundred million pound fund, you have maybe four years to deploy that hundred million pounds into startups So it really is their job to meet as many startups as possible and to be handing over that cash. Um, And so from that respect, like any VC will typically take a meeting and then it's up to you in that meeting to be able to pique their interest uh, and get across the right message uh, in the right way for them to be able to understand the vision and and want to back it. And from that aspect, actually, I had a a lecture when I was uh, on a weekend away with Entrepreneur First um, that Matt, one of the co-founders of Entrepreneur First gave, around how VCs are structured and their business model and what they look for in startups and why they look for it more importantly. And that really helps when you're pitching to VCs because you can kind of understand what they're looking for uh, and it helps you shape your vision into something that, that they will back and, and invest in. Uh, and then conversely, when it comes to the sales side, you're then pitching to people who are actually having to front money to to pay for a product. Uh, and they're the ones who are, who are harder to win because they're not there to hand out money. They're there to actually bring good technology into a business to solve the problem uh, so that's where your your kind of value proposition needs to be really sharp really kind of well thought out and needs to be valuable to the the customer you're speaking to uh, so i always found yeah the investment side was always a lot easier than than the initial stages of the sales side um, yeah but having said that it also depends on the vc firm you're speaking to uh, some vc firms will will prefer certain types of companies over others so you have to pick the the investors quite carefully
1: And we're obviously in the middle of a pandemic and everyone is locked in their houses. So (laughs) (laughs) do you you think that access to funding is going to change over the next year?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. There's a lot of, um, again, a lot of news articles kind of bouncing around about this, but uh, I don't think it's so much the pandemic, but more what the pandemic is doing to the economy. And that off the back of, uh, within the tech world, there's been quite a few kind of large things that have happened over the past six to 12 months Uh, The main one being WeWork and and the collapse of WeWork's valuation when they were trying to IPO that have meant that VC firms are taking a step back and looking at companies and thinking actually what makes a company valuable? Is it just a cool kind of brand? Is it a cool bit of tech? Or is it actually a really sharp value proposition and a good amount of revenue to show that people actually really back that value proposition? Uh, And I think over the past year, people have been moving more towards that that kind of sharpened value proposition and and revenue type focus uh, against valuing companies. Supplier running reviews uh, and it can take up to eight to 12 weeks per supplier to do that and it really slows down procurement cycles and causes a lot of pain on the enterprise side and similarly on the uh, on the, the supplier side they end up having to do this with every client they work with so for them it's a huge drain of time and resource uh, and they tend to basically just treat it as oh I've been sent this questionnaire that asks me a load of security questions I will just tick the right boxes that I think need to be ticked because I need to win this and I need to win it now um, and that's the problem that we, that we really kind of set out to solve with Risk Ledger. And the way that we solve it is we have created what we call a secure social network. So the idea is that organizations can join and can very quickly invite their suppliers or connect with the suppliers if the suppliers are already onboarded. Uh, and in that way, can very quickly and easily gather up all of this data. And on the supplier side, once they created a profile and almost told Risk Ledger how they govern their security and provided some evidence for that, they can just share that single profile with all of their clients in quite a standard uh, way. And then we've built in a lot of flexibility between uh, the way organizations connect with each other that allow different enterprises to basically apply different levels of, of security requirements or different policies over different groups of suppliers. And that flexibility is super important uh, because every enterprise is different. They all have different risk appetites and, and you're having to build a product that um, that satisfies all of them. Um, and one of the great things about that is that essentially instead of it being siloed companies going out to their supply chain now, it ends up being um, almost this like, Tangled web of companies that all have visibility of each other's security if the other company has has given them that visibility. So the data collection is is made kind of super quickly, super cheaply. Um, and on the flip side, suppliers speed up their buying cycles kind of uh, hugely. It can cut buying cycles from two months down to kind of a day because um, they're able to share their security details with, with the click of a button. Um, and that social network element then kind of takes me onto the vision, which is essentially that. Uh, It's almost like this governance platform that every organization can join and can use to govern their security internally. And then when it comes to showing their clients through this connection request mechanism, they can just lift off the lid and show their clients what they do. But what that allows us to do is essentially provide integrations into different tool sets. So one of our investors, for example, is a director at CrowdStrike. Then we can uh, integrate with the API of CrowdStrike. uh, It allows us to collect that objective data from each one of these suppliers and then show that to the clients that there, there have been no problems in the supply chain. Uh, and the vision is essentially to build a security operation center for the supply chain. So we'll end up with a lot of these integrations into different tool sets. We'll amalgamate all of that data. Uh, and in the SIEM solution, collects data from multiple kind of systems within an organization. We'll do that from multiple organizations across a network of suppliers. And we'll be able to basically spot, uh, prevent and respond to attacks uh, on the wire um, in the supply chain, which is something that, that cannot currently be done.
1: Wow. And I think you you touched on it, you know, third party... Third party risk is one of the biggest causes of uh, breaches at the moment. Do you think that's set to continue?
2: Definitely. And probably, I would imagine, uh, get a bit worse as well. Uh, and that's for two reasons. So, firstly, as, uh, as with everything that's going on with, with the pandemic and, and the economic impacts, uh, companies will look to kind of cut costs. And in doing so, they might uh, look to change suppliers to suppliers who are cheaper, which inherently brings uh, kind of a bigger risk because there's less margin for them to reinvest in security. Uh, and similarly to that, uh, supply chain is one of those areas where it's a lot of it's made up of a lot of small to medium enterprises. And SMEs, um, even though they, they do take security seriously, they typically don't have the expertise or the budget to be able to match uh, the security programs that large enterprises have. And so they're always going to be a larger risk. But one of the things that they can't do is typically if, if an SME is attacked, uh, they might not know they've been attacked. They might not know that the data has been taken. And so you end up with a lot of kind of data breaches happening down the supply chain. Uh, that aren't reported or that are never found out about. Uh, and so I'd say that kind of two-thirds estimate is probably um, an underestimate as well. Uh, so I'd say, yeah, over the next kind of two years, as supply chains start to tidy up, as you start to see uh, increases in the in the reportings of these breaches, uh, it's definitely gonna, gonna grow as a risk.
1: Do you think SMEs are starting to understand that risk? Uh,
2: yes and no. So it really does depend on the SME. Um, to be honest, like being an SME, you have to understand that an SME's focus isn't necessarily on security. So they provide a service, and their focus has to be on providing that service and, and winning money for the business. Like they're there to make money for the company, not not to uh, necessarily kind of be the most secure. And so for them, um, security is always kind of second to that that primary business goal. Uh, and and most SMEs that we speak to, like they, they don't not want to be secure. It's it's just they don't really understand how to be. And the current kind of assurance process of just pinging questionnaires back and forth doesn't really help them in doing that. All it does is ask them a load of questions uh, that they have to kind of jump through to be able to win a contract. And that's where we kind of really saw a tech platform making a huge impact. So uh, the idea behind our tech platform is that they can sign up for free. They can take a load of security best practice that we've built into the platform. We've got a whole knowledge base that advises them on how to implement controls. And they can pretty much uh, frictionlessly kind of implement a full security program using Risk Ledger internally. So it makes security super easy for them and super easy to understand. And then it also has the added benefit of then solving that problem around showing their clients they are taking it seriously. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like SMEs definitely, uh, they do want to be secure, but it tends to be a lack of budget or a lack of focus. And the fact that security is actually quite hard to maintain, uh, that means that they're not
1: Security is typically seen just as a cost center. Do you feel like, uh, you know, this actually moves away from that a little bit? You know, being secure can help you win more business almost.
2: Yeah, sorry, the, my doorbell's going off in the background. It's the, uh, the, the theme song from Titanic, if anyone hears that. But um, <laughs> yeah, so um, definitely. So security is and always will be a cost to a business. It, it, it's not there to generate revenue. Uh, And if anything, kind of increasing security inherently uh, kind of comes or puts barriers in the way of people doing business. So if you imagine, if you didn't have to log into your computer, that saves you kind of 10 to 15 seconds every morning logging in. If you didn't have to decrypt a file before reading it, it again, saves time. So in essence, security is uh, putting barriers in the way of of people doing business, but those barriers then bring added benefits of decreasing the risk. Um, Yeah, and one of the things we're trying to do with the platform is actually... Is that transformation between seeing security as a cost and moving it more towards a way to differentiate yourselves from competitors? So, certifications did try and do this, and and kind of ISO certifications, for example, uh, companies thought that by getting the certification, that might kind of show them in a better light to their clients. And in kind of one aspect, that was correct. But in another, because these certifications basically set a baseline and there's certain ways you can change the scope of the certification, they never really kind of did change the culture of security towards. Um, towards a kind of a revenue generating culture, uh, but through our platform, yeah, one of the things we're, we're kind of focusing on is benchmarking uh, companies, so you can benchmark yourselves against your peers. And um, if you're in the top quartile, you can show your clients, "I'm in the top quartile, so it's it's worth you buying me over any of my competitors." Uh, and it really is kind of driving that that cultural and transformational change into the attitude towards security, rather than just asking them to put in place a firewall. Um, yeah, and that's that's almost part of the mission of what we're trying to do.
1: Now, security is obviously a, a crowded space, um, and there's a lot of, uh, I feel like there's a lot of negativity in the market as well towards vendors at the moment. <laughs> so yeah. how do you think, well, how do you go about getting attention of the, the C-level people that you need, and how do you think other people can get their attention as well?
2: Yeah, I think the, the hardest part for a vendor in the security space at the minute is getting the attention of CISOs, so it's getting in front of that CISO um, to then pitch to, and I can completely understand why, but there definitely is a lot of vendor fatigue at the minute. And I think that's because a lot of cybersecurity, I mean, it's a booming industry that's been growing over the past kind of 10 years. Uh, it's quite an immature industry. So a lot of the, the the kind of the new startups have followed the Silicon Valley model of hiring huge sales teams who don't necessarily know the product, who don't necessarily know the value proposition. Uh, and so CISOs end up being hounded by, by salespeople who, again, don't really necessarily speak the same language as them. Um, And that's caused a huge amount of kind of vendor fatigue and CISOs not really wanting to interact with vendors just because they don't have the time to or the focus to be able to. Uh, And yeah, the way we've kind of overcome that problem was really kind of finding champions in the market. So find a group of people, typically CISOs, who you can get in front of and that might be through your own personal network, it might be through using startup accelerators, it might be through events. pitch to them your vision, don't sell it, like tell them what you're trying to achieve. You're not there to sell a technology, you're then, especially in an early stage startup, you're there to get them bought into what you're trying to achieve. So tell them what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to achieve it. Uh, And once they kind of bought into that, they will go and tell their friends about it. And suddenly you end up kind of with this quite viral effect of people hearing about you without you needing to be in front of them. So that's definitely uh, worked well for us. and it means that, yeah, they're not being hounded by salespeople. It's actually CISOs turning to all the CISOs saying, oh, how have you solved this problem? And then that CISO kind of referring them on to a supplier who has helped them or who has an idea that can solve that problem. And that definitely at the minute is probably the best way to, to get in front of CISOs and, and get your, your vision out there.
1: I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, and the market is obviously evolving at a very fast pace. So how do you, how do you keep up to date? How do you make sure you're still learning? <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, that's a good question, actually, because running a company, you end up, so definitely still am like a cybersecurity specialist, but at the same time, I'm having to learn how to build a company, which is a completely different skill set. And you end up almost living these two different careers where on the one hand, I'm specializing in supply chain. So I'm constantly learning about uh, new innovations in supply chain technology in the way supply chains work and learning from kind of speaking to clients. Uh, and then conversely, at the same time, I'm having to learn all about accounting and law and HR and... Um, and I think like, the, the law, HR, and accounting side is quite easy to stay on top of because you're doing it every day when you're running a company. Uh, and then on the, on the, the kind of cybersecurity side, it's all about speaking to customers. So every pitch that we go to, I'm there. I'm typically the one along with uh, the business team who gives the demos. And I'm quite close with, with all of the customers we have at the minute. So all the feedback kind of comes through me. Uh, and through that, you're able to kind of stay on top of what the customers are thinking and how they're thinking about the problem. And that's really important to be able to understand that because that all factors in then to how you build the tech and your future roadmap around what you're trying to build. Um, So, yeah, definitely kind of a lot of conversations with CISOs and customers. I listen to a lot of uh, kind of lectures and podcasts when I can. Uh, And and then it's just reading news and and trying to stay on top of, of all the developments that happen within the security industry for sure.
1: Have you given any thought to how you will sort of stay in touch with all your customers as you get bigger when maybe it's not possible for you to go to everyone?
2: <laughs> so I've got this attitude where it's kind of like I'll put a problem off up until it's a problem. Um, so, yeah, basically the way tech startups kind of the, the journey of tech startup goes on is typically the first 20 to 50 customers the founding team will be quite close to because they'll be the initial customers who are helping them build out the platform helping them shape the vision and really providing feedback into what they're building. And then after that, you end up having to hire a customer success team, a sales team to support kind of the growth and and actually kind of increase the number of customers that you are servicing. Um, And yeah, the the ways that I've thought about approaching that, so it tends to be, I think, down to the quality of people you hire in the customer success and the sales team. So uh, we're quite fortunate in that we've got a great sales director who has a a background in in kind of fintech and, and tech startups in the financial world. Um, and so he's able to, to kind of maintain all of the relationships as well uh, and he's been an absolute star in learning about cybersecurity, he probably knows as much about supply chains as I do at the minute, so um, he's been absolutely great in maintaining those relationships and similarly on the customer success side, we've got a great uh, customer success lead and she uh, is an absolute wizard when it comes to, to tech and receiving feedback and holding and building those relationships. Uh, so I suppose bringing that answer background, in short, it's all about kind of building a team who reflect your core values on how you want to service your customers uh, and making sure that those core values are then trickled down as they hire people and the team grows and making sure you're not kind of um, falling short on that and that everybody is there to make the customers happy and to hear feedback from the customers. So we're not just giving them something. They're actually telling us how to make our technology better. And then we're taking that back to the tech team uh, and just making sure that kind of communication loop is always there and always working is probably the number one uh, priority, at least for a for, 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 for young tech founder.
1: I think that piece around the right team with the right values, values that match you, um, that's really, really hard, but really good advice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you get that a lot as a, as a young tech founder around building a culture or a set of values within a company and people tell you to write the values down, which is all great. Um, but I think a lot of people focus too much on it in terms of they're constantly thinking about it like we need to make sure we have these values we need to have, make sure that we have these this culture in the company and they're almost trying to force it in and that I don't think that's really how culture is built um I think if you're there and you're you're kind of leading from the front and you're instilling your culture into, into everything you do then the rest of the team around you will inherently kind of pick that up and run with it um, and it's almost an organic growth the culture ends up changing with every new employee that joins they bring something new to the team they bring a new attitude a new way of looking at things and and so you, you end up kind of with this ever-evolving culture that's always changing always improving but is built around these core principles and it's definitely good to to say so right at the very start Dan and I before we'd even hired anyone had sat down and, and written almost like a an onboarding handbook and within that we had kind of the, the the five or six pillars that we were looking for within within people when we were hiring them um, we wrote down our mission statement, for example, to make sure everybody was aligned behind this one, one vision.
1: Um, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to wants to set up their own security business?
2: <laughs> be ready. Um, yeah, it's I, if if it's early stage and they've got an idea, then I would say uh, talk to as many people as possible. So don't be afraid to go out and pitch to people. Um, You don't have to ask people to sign NDAs. Nobody is going to have the passion behind the idea that you have. So it's very rare for for ideas to be taken. Uh, But speak to as many people as possible. Speak to other founders, speak to clients, speak to investors, and listen to their feedback. Um, One of the the key things and the the key things that I was quite lucky in that I realized quite early on is that everybody will try and knock it down at first. But that's not them trying to be mean. That's them trying to knock it down to see if it is a viable idea and if it's something that they would actually stand behind and get behind. Uh, so you need to be very, um, yeah, very ready to have people tear apart your your pitch, uh, the way you pitch it, what you're pitching. Uh, the very first pitch I gave uh, after about 35 minutes, the guy was just ready to to hang up on the call. Uh, and I only really caught him in the last 10 minutes. Uh, he kind of became really interested. But yeah, you have to just be ready to, to make mistakes in the pitch to, to be able to take feedback on board and shape that into something new uh, and be constantly iterating on what you're doing.
1: I think that's a really interesting point because you do get a lot of negativity when you when you come up with ideas. It's hard to not be put off when you when you (laughs) hear that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, If anything, you you want the negativity, though. And I think this is what separates successful founders. And I by no means yet would consider myself successful. But uh, the the founders I've met who have built uh, businesses and exited them and, and built really great products, they had almost this thirst for negativity. And that they wanted people to tear apart their platform, they wanted people to tear apart their pitch, they wanted people to tell them how to be better, and they were able to take that on board and, and, and improve on whatever they were doing and, and, and come back stronger. So yeah, I'd say that definitely is a, a skill that uh, you either need to have at the start or you need to learn very quickly if you want to, to build a, a tech company.
1: Now, all of our podcasts end with 10 quick-fire questions. So <laughs> <laughs> you need to just answer and not think. Um, are you ready? i profess that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. What turns you on professionally?
2: Hard challenges.
1: What turns you off professionally?
2: Monotonous work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How do you unwind?
2: Ooh, um music i'd say so to be honest yeah i I tend to unwind either just by chilling on youtube or listening to music uh, and not really doing much else
1: is that where the titanic doorbell comes from
2: yes that is yeah (laughs) (laughs) it was the best the best one on the on the the alarm system we have
1: (laughs) what profession other than your own would you like to try
2: uh oh i love my job that's the that's the thing here um it would have been a military profession, I think. I would have loved to have gone into the military.
1: Wow, okay. What activity gives you the most energy?
2: Uh, solving problems and leading teams would be the two that give me the most energy.
1: Who is your biggest inspiration?
2: Oh, I'm trying to think of a really intelligent answer to this. Um it's going to have to be my parents. So I was trying to think up something like Plato, or but I can't even pronounce a lot of the names that that were coming into my head. Um, yeah, definitely my parents. Like I've seen my parents kind of run up against obstacles, and, and my dad's got this attitude where he always overcomes whatever's in front of him. So it's kind of a, a, yeah, that's always been an inspiration.
1: If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject?
2: Uh, suppliers...
1: You are at your best when you're doing what?
2: Solving problems.
1: If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart?
2: Uh, say yes more.
1: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates?
2: <laughs> um nice guy with a great music taste
1: (laughs) i'm afraid i think with the doorbell that's not going (laughs) to (laughs) happen
0: thank you for listening to today's episode for the latest episodes please subscribe and for future conversations reach out on twitter and linkedin